0: Hello there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Club. We are getting deep into season two, episode five in front of us. We're going to be catching up with Nicole Calder. Fascinating story. First of all, Sam Elliott. Nice to see you once again. Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year, mate. How have you been?
0: I'm going really well. I tell you what, let's just preface this. We have already spoken to Nicole. I'm a little bit, Um, shaken by what I've heard. Not so much from um, a concerned perspective, but so much of what she had to say, uh, I found really resonated with me. I reflected back on my own sporting career, on periods of times when I've been a coach. And I imagine for you, it's pretty similar. I found myself taking so many notes during um, just listening in to what she was saying. Some really interesting stuff, even just the basics like uh, you got to start with why. Why do you do what you want to do? And whether that's yourself or whether that's other people you're working with, that was Probably my biggest takeaway.
1: Absolutely. And the things that I really enjoy, the listeners are going to appreciate the raw, naked, vulnerable uh, stories that she tells. And it's something that I'm not going to forget anytime soon.
0: There is no stone unturned. She is very, very revealing with the mental states that she dealt with when she was suffering one of her three knee reconstructions uh, right through to uh, relationships with her family uh, and even got into, uh, I suppose, dealing with young athletes that she now works with herself. Um, I- incredible content and uh, someone that if, if you're looking for someone to lean into to maybe provide some occasional support to your own athletes, then she is someone you really should consider utilising more of because uh, I think we will down the track as well, Sam. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: We always get underway with a club of the day. Should I roll one out for you?
1: I cannot wait.
0: Look, I've got a funny feeling that I might have gone down the road with Glenelg Cricket Club women's program once before, but we've had a bit of an update, so I reckon that they are uh, worth a mention. Came into South Australian cricket in 2016, 2017, I think it was, so relatively new They have emerged as one of the absolute giants of South Australian women's cricket now. You'd probably say Glenelg and Sturt are still the top two, but Glenelg really are number three. And that's quite remarkable when you consider they didn't have a program seven years ago. Um, They're now in the grand final this year of the second team competition, of the first team competition. They played in the grand final last year of the first team competition. Um, they've got Talia McGrath at their club, the arguably the number one cricketer in the world. They've got two members of national squads, Courtney Webb and Anasu Mashangui. i They've got two members of the Australian under-19 team um, who are off to the World mm. Cup just out of their club alone. Um, and their second team, uh, only last week, put on 350 in a 50-over game. There's a girl called Jacinta Chandler who scored 176. It's the largest score ever uh, by a woman at the club. Uh, I just want to take you back to 2017, which I reckon is just a a wonderful example of if you set the right environment and get the right people involved in driving a club, you can achieve amazing things. In 2017, their first team was in the second-grade competition. Sam, they were bowled out for 13 So we saw not so long ago the Sydney Thunder get bowled out for 15. Yeah, so 13 runs. But all All out for 13. Wow. Now they were very young. They were very, very inexperienced. A lot of them are new to the game. And so these things can happen in that scenario. But you think in six years, this club is right now bordering on being the most successful club in South Australian women's cricket. Six years after they were bowled out for 13, their first team in the second grade. I think it's a pretty remarkable achievement what this club has achieved. I used to actually play for Glenelg. So when I in my day, they didn't have any semblance of a women's program. But Graham Sedgenry, the coach. I know Cheryl Cook has been very heavily involved. Mark Cook, her son. Obviously, Mark's got a kid there. Um, Lucy Bowering was the one I was going to tell you about. She was part of that team that was bowled at for 13. Now she's one of the best spinners in South Australian cricket and took five wickets on the weekend. So, um, yeah, just a congratulations they're a they're a good sports club so we talk about the uh, alcohol and drug foundation and their program so they're doing a lot
1: right on and off the field glenel that's fantastic and you know what you've wrapped them before but i think that if they continue to do amazing things um why not give them another plug that's fantastic and uh mate we might need to get a member of the Glenelg cricket club onto the beyond the club podcast in the not too distant future
0: yeah well there's a lot of good stories out of that club that is for sure so yeah we'll, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on them Nicole Coulter, welcome to Beyond the Club
2: Thank you very much for having me here
0: Nicole, tell us a bit about your story It's a story that could just be filled in the podcast alone But just give us the very quick overview of who you are We know that you've uh, been very successful in soccer here in South Australia But just give us an overview of who you are and how you've come to where you are right now
2: uh, yeah, I'll try to keep this short. I grew up playing soccer and tennis, but at the age of 14, I chose to play soccer rather than tennis. Uh, I was in and out of Australian cr- camps growing up, and at the age of 18, i just turned 18, and I moved to America on a college scholarship, so I was over there for a couple of years, uh, six in total. Uh, my first year over being over there, I did my first ACL, and then in my last year of college, in my senior year, I did my second ACL which was very difficult for me, and I didn't think that I'd ever play soccer again. But then at the age of 21, I realised I'm probably too young to give up soccer altogether. Got into coaching, but coaching never sort of fulfilled that desire of playing. And then decided that I wanted to try and play soccer professionally, Uh, moved back to Australia to try and get into Adelaide United, and things didn't come to fruition here uh, in that sense, but uh, still playing. In 2019, did my ACL again for the third time, And my goal after that was sort of to come back and just be able to play soccer. Um, And in the midst of that, I've done a bit of coaching. I got a degree in psychology with a little bit of study in sports psychology, uh, a minor in coaching, uh, because I see that coaching is probably going to be my transition out of sport, um, which will hopefully fulfill the same sort of desire as playing.
0: We want to talk about motivation in particular today and wherever it takes us is wherever it takes us. How do you define motivation, not so much from a dictionary perspective, but from your own experiences where I'm sure there's been plenty of times where you've been hyper-motivated and times where you've been bordering on just want to toss all your chips in?
2: I guess it's desire to either achieve a goal or to win or to be competitive. Um, I see it quite a bit in even at the WNPR level here for soccer that there are some players who have that desire and then there are other players that don't. And I'm constantly questioning, how can you make players want it? Um, and it's a question that I'm not sure I have the answer to just yet, but maybe we'll discover that in the chat today. Sam, how do
1: you define motivation? Really simply, and lovely introduction, Nicole. Uh, direction and intensity of effort. Direction and intensity are the two dimensions here. People have direction of their effort because they go to work. So there's a level of motivation to seek out something. But then there's an intensity with which you do the task as well. And so some people race to work because they are so motivated to get through the door and start their day. And there are others that take their time because maybe they're not that excited or enthused to start their working day. So it's a good example uh, for any of our listeners there. Direction of effort is what we seek out and intensity of effort is the level of effort with which we put forward.
0: I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion between you two today because you are the practical example of going through the peaks and troughs of extreme motivation and extreme disappointment and periods of time in your life where you're thinking, why would I bother? Why do I even pull the covers back from the bed in the morning? Because this is all too much and you, you in the situation where, and you obviously, Nicole, you have in more recent times got a very clear understanding, some great research around these sorts of areas. But Sam, I mean, you are you are the, the, the research expert. So we're going to have the yin and the yang beautifully of I think the theory and the practicalities behind it all. Um, Sam, let's just come back to some theory for a second. Let's talk about, and the situation, let's... It, it, Relating The situation that relates to Nicole, who suffered multiple ACLs and saw her dreams crash right in front of her eyes, what are some of the theoretical, the research-based challenges that go
1: through an athlete in that circumstance? Yeah, that, I mean, there's lots into that question there. I think with Nicole's uh, ACL injury, one, you reminded me of one of my PhD students, Catherine, a friend of ours at yes. Beyond the Club, um, I think at least three ACL injuries. Friend of the show. Yes, absolutely. So, um, and is doing some really interesting research on social support. But as it, as it relates to motivation, I think one of the uh, the most... Uh, recognizable and one of the most usable theories to think about how we can support athletes when they do experience a decline in motivation is to adopt maybe a self-determination perspective. Now I need to break this down. (laughs) Self-determination. It's a form of, um, uh, I guess, understanding internal motivation. And how do you build that? Your question, Nicole, is how do we, how do you make athletes want it? How do you make them want to, I guess, um, succeed or drive themselves to the next level um, maybe that was you once upon a time. You'd love to see the best parts of you in the, the players that you coach. So self-determination theory has three core elements, and they're built on three basic human needs. And this theory basically states that we want to fulfill these needs, and if we do that, then we stand to build a high level of intrinsic motivation, this internal motivation. So, so what are those three things? Well, number one is competence. Okay, that's, that's effectively your skill set, your ability. Can you bring a certain level of c- capability to the table? Okay, so when you do an ACL injury, not very competent because you're not really even able to walk. You're, mm. you're, you're in rehabilitation. There's a high level of dependence on other people or, or other aids. So competence is probably low there, I would have suggested, hooky, when you're injured. There's another part here of self-determination theory. Social connectedness. Now, when you are injured, you go from insider to outsider immediately. So I would suggest that in terms of that basic human need, Nicole, you're probably ticking that one at a lower level as well because you're suddenly on the outside. Um, and your interactions are limited because you can't train the way you train, you can't play the way you play. So there's a level of connection that you're not getting. That, 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 that itch isn't being sort of uh, fulfilled right. The third box here is autonomy. Okay, So this is decision-making, it's control. Nicole would love to go out and do extra, as I imagine, pre-training. Can't do that. Nicole would love to make immediate decisions during games. Can't do that. She's not playing. She'd love to talk to the players about, hey, we need to change um, the, the next drill or the next activity to focus on this. Can't do that because she's not training. So your level of control or autonomy, your level of connectedness with other people, low, and your level of competence is fundamentally low as well. On the flip side, though, hooky, I know it's a long explanation, but if we if we maximise connectedness, if we give our players opportunities to exercise autonomy, decision making, control, if we give them an opportunity to demonstrate their competence, okay, show your skill set, show your strengths, your weapons, uh, they are the if you like the the, the key human needs that if met. Uh, strongly predict high levels of internal motivation. So that would be, there's a lot there we can unpack mm. there, but there's implications for parents, for coaches, for players, lots there. Beautiful, beautifully set up, Sam. So let's come back
0: to Nicole here and just talk about some of the challenges that you face that relate to what Sam is referring to. Did you feel, and I mean, the answer can be no here, but did you feel when you did your ACL, did you feel incompetent?
2: Definitely, Um Probably the biggest thing was that, uh, you know, after my first ACL, I wasn't even able to go to the toilet by myself and <laughs> I needed assistance going to the toilet. I needed assistance getting changed. I needed assistance showering. And, you know, as a grown adult, you have grown out of needing your parents for that. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where your parents are in another country and you're having to do all of that by yourself. Mm. And it's uh, How humbling. How old were
0: you at the time here? So you were in college in the US. Are you, what, 18? 18. Yeah, Just wow. turned 18.
2: Um, my dad was very fortunate. He had planned to come over to America when, um, before I had done my ACL and then it just happened to be when I was having surgery. So he was there for the first two days after surgery and he had to leave on day two, which, uh, probably was the hardest thing that he had to do because it was when I tried to go to the toilet by myself, hit my leg on the floor and almost passed out because of the pain. Mm. And he had to leave straight after that for a flight back to Australia, Mm. which goes against every parent's natural instinct to sort of be there, protect and whatever else, um, but yeah, there was definitely that that lack of competence and that lack of ability. And I remember probably my biggest advice for anyone that is going through ACL in, uh, recovery is, um, or any
0: injury really, any extended yeah, injury, yep,
2: uh, is to sort of. Uh, celebrate those small victories because those small victories are the big victories you know so celebrate the fact that you can walk by yourself or you can walk without crutches celebrate the fact that you can drive again Uh, i know that for me that was a massive milestone because that's when you get your independence back um and autonomy yep
1: yeah absolutely sorry to jump in but yeah yeah yeah. nicole i mean i want to jump in here just to Uh, Fast forward, when you're actually back playing and you've gone through the first, the second, the third ACL, there's a period when you recover and you are on the pitch there. Through that period of the first game, the first 10 games, the season, you would have, like any athlete, experienced fluctuations in motivation. Did you ever feel less competent than what you used to be?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think for ACLs, they usually say that the first year you recover physically, and then it takes another year to recover mentally. And so it takes you a year to overcome that sort of fear that you had when you first did it. Uh, and I think I liken doing your, doing your second and third ACL to being in multiple car accidents. So the first time that you're in a car accident, you're afraid to get behind the wheel again, and you know you eventually get over it. But imagine if you're in another car accident, all of a sudden it's going to take you longer to get back. And heaven forbid you're in a third car accident, and you might think, well, I'm never going to drive again and uh, that was sort of my experiences multiple times where the first ACL extremely motivated to come back because I saw it as a challenge I thought you know what I this is an opportunity for me to come back stronger fitter smarter Uh, but then the second ACL almost destroyed me Uh, emotionally I knew what to expect and I just could not go through that again Um, taken to fact also when you when you're injured you go through a drug withdrawal And I don't think we talk about that enough with athletes that injuries are debilitating in the sense that not only is it a loss of identity, but you're losing your primary coping mechanism probably and you're also going through a drug withdrawal. So, you know, we talk a lot about addicts and how addicts struggle when they have to... Wean off of uh, whatever drug it is that they're using, and athletes, it's no different. You know, their sport is almost a drug to them. You lose the oxytocin, you lose the dopamine, the serotonin, uh, and the endorphin releases. Which, okay, yeah, c- you can eat chocolate, but there's only so much chocolate you can eat without getting fat. Um, so, yeah. you
1: shot a look at me, then I thought, Sam, <laughs> me? I, me, no, I was thinking how well you're looking, hooky, and thinking, geez, I've got a bit of work to do here. But um, no, absolutely, you hit now on the head there, and I just think it's quite interesting that. The, the competence that you feel that you're lacking, even when you come back from injury, isn't always, oh, I've rebuilt my body, I'm back to where I was. Sometimes there's a lot of doubt that maybe I don't move as well laterally or I don't have the acceleration. And sometimes when you see other people continuing their development that maybe haven't had injuries, it can also, I guess, cast, if you like, a, a mirror on where you're up to with your rehabilitation. It can certainly challenge athletes uh, in terms of their motivation hooky.
0: What drives you, Nicole? Uh, i have had a bit to do with you a few times. You seem incredibly driven. So not driven from a a manic, uh, aggressive perspective, but driven from the perspective of someone who um, is very clear in what they want to do with their life and, and how they want to assist others. What drives you to achieve those things rather than sit on the couch and watch Netflix, which is... A driver for a lot of people.
2: Well, I do that too, so (laughs) I can't try and pretend that I don't. Uh, Very good question. And I guess that question sort of relates to what is my why, if you will. Um, Simon Sinek talks about that a lot uh, in his book, Start With Why. Um, When I was a kid, I always – I wouldn't want to say that I wanted to be the best, but I wanted to be competitive and I wanted to be the best that I could be. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily comparing myself to other people because, you know, there are always going to be people who are quicker than you and you can't, uh, you can't fake physiology, you can't trick physiology. So I was never going to be the quickest player, but I wanted to be the best player that I could. I wanted to control what I could control. So if I could go out for an extra 15 minutes in the morning and go do something, then I would. Uh, and some of that motivation came from being embarrassed. You know, I... Uh, reference this a bit with the kids that I coached. that any time that I've learned a new skill, it's been when I've worked on it by myself in my own time. And I sort of say, you know, champions are made when no one is looking. Um, I went to an Australian camp and the likes of, you know, Sam Kerr, Emily van Egmond and whatnot, they could all juggle the ball down the length of the field. And I was struggling to even keep the ball up. And I was so embarrassed that I went home after that every single morning for 15 minutes, I'd go and I would learn, I would teach myself how to juggle because I never wanted to feel humiliated or embarrassed again. Uh, And so I think that was a big driving force growing up. Um, And now there has still been that, I guess, driving force of wanting to play at that next level. Uh, It's always been a goal of mine. um, And no matter how many ACLs I have, I still can't seem to let go of that. But I also know that sometimes our goals might have to shift in you know, what that looks like. So originally it might have been playing for Adelaide United, but now it might be playing for another team in Australia or maybe it's playing overseas. So it's still achieving the same goal, but it's sort of a different destination, if that makes sense.
0: Why do you think you're so naturally self-motivated? And you were referencing that you have teammates that maybe don't share that same level of self-drive.
2: I think it would be wrong of me not to attribute some of that to my parents. Uh, my parents expected a lot of us as kids from both an academic and a sporting perspective. Um, you know, they would say, why are we sort of investing this money if you're not going to work hard? And it was sort of that harsh reality of, you know, they are giving up their time and their money for you. Um, and you need to show that, you you know, you deserve that sort of thing. Uh, and same thing from an academic perspective that my parents always said to me, make sure you do well in school because you won't ever make money off of sport. Mm. Uh, and especially as a female athlete, that mm. there's so much truth in that. And so I, you know, prioritise schooling and education, uh, probably to the detriment of my social life. Um, but my parents had those expectations of me. And when I didn't meet those expectations, they communicated their disappointment. Now, as a kid, you never want to feel mm. disappointed. Um, but I found that uh, a lot of that comes down to what the coach and the president's that the coach sets uh, that sort of sets up the motivation of the team too uh, and I'm finding that with my 17s that uh, that I'm coaching this year that I've set up the expectations that you know there has to be a desire that you want to be here if you don't want to be here this probably isn't the team for you because at the end of the day I can't help you if you don't come to training um, and so it's setting that expectation that if you don't come to training you don't play and actually sticking to that and making sure that you're fair uh, in your application of that so if that means that you know, say three people don't come to training all week. Well, we start with eight players instead of 11. And I've said to the girls, are you happy with that rule? And they said, well, depends who we're playing. And I said, no, it's not a case of who we're playing. A rule is a rule and it applies across the board. Um, And I said, so you guys either accept this as a rule or you don't. You guys, you know, sort of choose your own fate here. And they said, okay, we'll start with eight players then.
0: Let's just backtrack a little there. Wonderful answer, Sam. Um, So Nicole is talking about, uh, how she's self-driven and that has been encouraged through her parents can parents encourage athletes to become or encourage their kids as athletes to become self-driven or is Nicole just some unique freak who you know is amazing us as this as this conversation wears on
1: Nicole was certainly amazing um, I did have a moment of <gasps> because listeners especially parents might be thinking oh that's what I've got to do to motivate my child. I've got to set high expectations. And- I've got to remind them that we've invested in, Nicole's in a, a very unique situation, a very talented player. player's played at a high level. Not many kids get a chance to go to the, the US on a college scholarship. But most of our listeners that may be at the grassroots level, Um, I'm not sure that, um, well, I'm hoping that our listeners aren't thinking, geez, the way to motivate my child, or the only way, or the only way is to really just basically let them know that I'm buying them the best boots and that they've got no stone left unturned. Mm. You've got no reason not to like your sport and you should be getting up in the morning to do that. But what I would say is that Nicole's really beautifully illustrated a really key, uh, point about motivation, because most people, and we see this with a lot of coaches and with a lot of conversation around motivation, is that they feel that it's very individualistic. And the reason why athletes exhibit a high or low level motivation must be because of the individual. What the research shows is that there's actually this interaction between individual and environment. And so an example might be this hooky. Some of my students love coming to class and learning theoretically. They love sitting in the tutorial or the lecture theater and learning in that environment. But there are others that love learning by doing. They can't wait to go into the gym and practically learn through experience. We get the basketballs out, we learn about even this topic, about motivation. And so two very different environments that have an impact on motivation. And we could think of a number of examples of that. It's very exciting to watch a game of football. Certainly for me at home, it's a very different experience, a different level of motivation to watch the game if I'm there live. So the environment cannot be forgotten in this. And often what I think is really important for coaches to think about, especially uh, even parents, is what kind of environment are we contributing to around the child, around the athlete? Because that of course has an influential impact on motivation as well.
0: It's more than just, uh, I mean, the the conversation that that Nicole put forward was my parents displayed this for me and I felt an obligation to follow. I mean, parenthood is so much more heavily layered than that, isn't it? Which uh, you're both making a really good point about. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Nicole Calder and, of course, Dr. Sam Elliott. We're talking about motivation. We're deep into it. It's fascinating stuff. So don't go away. We're going to take a short message from the Sammy D Foundation.
2: Hi, it's Rachel here from the Sammy D Foundation. It's been a busy year as we've been back in the community with our violence prevention education programs. We've delivered our award-winning Monkey See, Monkey Do violence prevention program to 30 sporting clubs and within this educated 1,500 club members. Now's the time to get in touch and chat about how Sammy D can educate and empower the young people at your sporting club. Please visit sammyd.org.au.
0: Thanks for your company on Beyond the Club, Ben Hook and Sam Elliott with you. With us is Nicole Calder, who is an incredible motivational speaker who is doing some wonderful work with young South Australians in and outside of sport. Nicole, there's a term, goal setting, that I'm interested in your thoughts on. It is as old as me, a lot older than you. Is it still relevant? Uh in the modern era of motivation, would you still recommend it? Is there forms of it that you think are important?
2: Uh, I have to be probably careful what I say here because I I really struggle with goal setting um, because I think sometimes goal setting, when we're setting a goal, we're basically saying that where we are is not okay. Where mm. we are is not enough. You know, I'm not okay with where I am and I want to be somewhere else. And I think so much in society is already telling us that we're not good enough where we are, that sometimes goal setting can be saying oh, well, you're not good enough where you are, you need to be here. Um, Like the example of weight that we were sort of talking about earlier, that, uh, you know, if you say, oh, well, at the end of the year, I want to weigh 70 kilos, okay? And throughout the year, you lose five kilos, and so you go from 85 to 80, but you're disappointed because you're like, oh, well, Yeah, I missed my goal. And yet, if you actually look at the process, you're healthier than what you were at the start of the year, but when we become so fixated on achieving that goal we end up losing the joy of the process and the fact that you're probably actually eating healthier and you're living a healthier lifestyle because we're so fixated on the outcome. Um, And I think for me, when we were talking about uh, this before with uh, my goal of playing for Adelaide United or playing professionally, that great in the sense that it motivated me to work harder to achieve this goal, but sometimes there are things outside of your control that dictate what you actually achieve. So you're never actually given the opportunity you might not ever be able to achieve your goal. So you could be, you know, you might want to be the world's best barista in the world. But if no one actually gives you a job in a coffee (laughs) shop, you're never going to be the best barista, are you? Uh, And the same thing sort of applies in sport, that you might have aspirations of playing at the highest level, but if you're not given an opportunity, you probably won't ever be able to achieve it. Um, And what I found is that each time that I missed that goal, if you will, and I wasn't selected or I, I was cut from the squad, I was devastated. You know, I kept questioning, "What's the point?" Mm. You know, I wanted to quit soccer because I became so fixated on the goal or the outcome, rather than on the fact that I'm playing soccer because I enjoy it.
1: Nicole, that is one of the most beautiful and raw things we've heard on the podcast. The, the idea that goal setting um, is, a, in your mind, a, in some ways, a, a we need to be careful with how we talk about it because it can, it can reinforcing the minds of our listeners that we are is not good. It's such a powerful thing. and something I hadn't thought about.
0: And it's something that's probably a great discussion that leads into maybe you can explain for us the basics of extrinsic motivation versus intrinsic motivation, because that has a, a clear relationship to goal setting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think what Nicole's um, started to talk about here is when we are setting goals, because of course, we then have a level of. Direction. We've got somewhere to aim for. Um, often people can do that. Often they can um, identify and they can write down a a long-term or an outcome-focused goal. But what Nicole's also highlighted is that maybe we need some assistance, uh, and this will help us value process goals. And so those things along the way, those tiny habits that stack, um, you know, over time to build new. Uh, behavioural change effectively so what does that look like well I think when it comes to a lot of the players that I work with at at, at, you know in football want to play AFL Mm, so there's mm. an extrinsic outcome focused goal it's the 1% of the 1% and it's binary isn't it it's drafted or not it's
0: I'm on a list, great. I'm not on a
1: list, fail. Yeah, and I think that's worth thinking through because if our listeners, uh, oh, my, my son or daughter wants to make the AFL as well or the AFLW, you got to think like, well, geez, firstly, if you do make it, if you do make it, just understand that you are joining a list of 44 other players. You're the 45th player. So if you feel like your dream is going to be made, you've got a long way to actually then make your way through to, to, to play consistent football at that level. There's still so plenty of obstacles. There's always challenge in sport, and doesn't matter what level. If you don't make it, uh, as Nicole, you've highlighted here, it can be devastating for some. And I think that's one of the reasons why the devastation manifests is because we haven't really given thought to and value to the process goals along the way. And so one of the things that we'd encourage our athletes to do is thinking, well, if you're trying to make the, you know, to be drafted this year, as an example, that's that's eight months away. It's a long time away. So what are your goals this week? What are your goals at training tomorrow night? What are your goals in a fortnight? What are your goals in a month before the season starts? And by developing process goals, what that often does is support more individualized and sometimes internal focus, uh, not on the outcome, but on the process. And I think that's a really good way to start thinking about it. You mentioned extrinsic and intrinsic. I did. Yeah. So for our listeners, and many may be familiar with these terms.
0: Uh, Just to clarify, I mentioned them because you wrote them down in some
1: show notes and I didn't understand what they meant. So I thought I'd better ask you and find out. You've been doing some stuff study hooky behind the scenes, mate. You've had Christmas off and you've been doing some homework, but um extrinsic. So extrinsic is, as the name might suggest, external. And there's nothing wrong with having some external motivation. It's why people go to work and get paid. So there's nothing wrong with um, behaving in a way or putting direction intensity of effort into a task for an outcome. But if that's- So the- if we just relate it back to Nicole,
0: Her goal of trying to get onto the Adelaide United list, perfectly reasonable thought process.
1: Nothing wrong with that. But if that's all there is, then that's where we often see a lot of uh, athletes in particular, but in any achievement, in in work is a good example as well. Um, there's, there's, There's dangers with that because when you don't, meet that outcome. The, the uh, It's often been described as the misery line, because there's a fine line between making that goal and not making it. And it's literally a millimeter. And yet your mood and the, your, your self-worth can change like that. It's such, a, such an interesting concept. So the extrinsic has a place, but it can't just be it. And the research actually shows uh, that if you are predominantly extrinsically motivated, then you usually enjoy sport less, you tend to have higher levels of mood disturbance. So there's certainly challenges with being solely motivated by reward. On the flip side, there is this thing called intrinsic motivation, which is much more internally derived. And so these are things that might be described as doing it for the love of the game. And Nicole, you obviously love, is soccer the right term? Yes. I'm going to use that term. So you love soccer. You've loved the game from a young age. I think you said that you played tennis and soccer and you chose it from an early age. And that is what you loved. Okay, for a range of reasons, that was your why. You woke up because you fell in love with the game. And that is something that I think is not always natural for a lot of young kids that are playing sport, but that's what we need to try and nurture and to help them realise the value in that. They are both important, but what the research shows is that those that tend to be a little bit higher on intrinsic motivation tend to fare better when it comes to enjoyment, perceptions of competence, um, managing our disappointment, etc. Does one lead to another? One can lead to another. So a good example, let's use uh, Sam at the Bedford Park Bullfrogs, maybe Mm -hmm. pre-season's coming up and I want to maybe get myself into shape, um, you know, and and lose a few kilos as an example. So I have an extrinsic reward to um, measure up in a particular way. And in and of itself, I wouldn't endorse that. But let's just, for the example, let's just run with that. Uh, And so I might start seeing a personal trainer. Okay. And after the first session, I'm hurting. And I'm not enjoying it and it's a really difficult session and I'm not sure I'll go back. Week two, I go back again because again, I'm driven by an extrinsic reward. But over time, over week three, week four, week five, a boot camp, week 15, week 16, I might start to see a change in my motivation. I might be getting to that PT session a few minutes early. I might want to speak and have some banter with my personal trainer. I might want to get a coffee with some friends after the session. I might want to stretch because I'm actually looking forward to the session now. So extrinsic motivation can actually fuel and it can actually give opportunity for the rebirth of intrinsic motivation. But the point is that you're never one or the other. You just tend to be a bit higher. Uh, and so I think for the listeners out there, it's really important that if you have a child that loves the game, that's fantastic. I would nurture that as much as you can. If you've got someone that you're constantly having to bargain or to incentivize or to dangle the carrot, to some degree, that's a good It's a good um, starting point, but it can't be the only point mm. that you've got. in. so you might think, you know what? Uh, my child was not sure if they wanted to play volleyball this year or soccer this year or footy this year. Um, I'm going to um, make sure that after the season that we um, we uh, acknowledge their effort to get through a season and give it a go because maybe they are, um, you know, typically predisposed as a person to not want to seek out these types of things. Um, but if you're doing that year six, year seven, year eight, year nine, year ten, that's not building the intrinsic desire for the individual to pursue that sport in and of themselves. We're closing in on one of the key parts of this episode, which is our fast four. And Nicole, we're going to
0: lean on you. And you're going to give us our fast four from perhaps different stages of your career as an aspiring athlete, as a senior athlete, as a coach, and as now as a a motivator and a motivational speaker, I'm looking forward to that. We'll do that on the other side of the break. I just want to throw one more topic at you two because it's something that during my sporting career, I think I relied on way more than I should have, but it was a motivator. I'm interested in your thoughts on it, and it's the prove them wrong mentality. So I reckon I spent 90% of my cricket career thinking this is – rubbish, I'm not getting picked and I deserve more opportunity and I'm out to prove them wrong. Nicole, I'll kick it off with you. Have you ever had the thought process of, I need to prove these people wrong? And was that a good motivator for you?
2: Yeah, it happened in 2000 and I think it was 17. And when I missed out on sort of getting a contract for Adelaide United and I remember my brother said to me, he said, Nicole, go out there and give that coach absolutely no reason to overlook you the following year. And sort of that prove them wrong mentality, you know, go out there, dominate, do whatever you can. And I remember actually I did, I think, a, uh, a video blog on this and it's you can't change someone's perception of you. Mm. So once someone's made up their mind on you, it is very hard to change their as of you. Uh, so from a coaching perspective, if they've overlooked you once, it would take a very sort of humble coach to admit, Hey, you know what? I was wrong to overlook this person. I actually really want them in the squad. Um, and my thing is, if someone doesn't see value in you for who you are, don't bother trying to prove them wrong. Go find an environment where someone does value you. And we speak a lot about the environment playing uh, playing a role in people's motivation. And I think coaches play a massive role in individuals' motivation. And I think. You know, the sign of a good coach is I have a litmus test of three things. You know, does the child improve at the end of the year? Does the child want to play under you again the following year? And is the child motivated to actually work harder at what they do? Um, And, you know, are they showing up to training early? Are they coming out to training and whatever else? Uh, To me, that's the sign of a good coach. And I think, again, looking at the environment, yes, some individuals are intrinsically motivated, but sometimes... If the environment is conducive, people want to be involved in it. You know, it's contagious. They don't want to be on the outside. They don't want to miss training because it's like, oh, you know, if I miss training, then I'm missing out on all this fun. And I think sometimes that uh, that uh, role lies on the coach and creating that environment in which individuals can succeed i think we focus so much on individuals and blaming individuals and saying oh you know um it's your fault when you're not doing well but what kid goes out there and you know with uh we use school what kid goes out there and is like oh you know can't wait to get the answer of this question wrong you (laughs) know no kid intentionally tries to make mistakes but when they're making mistakes it's probably because there's something in their environment that's preventing them from succeeding and that's when we actually need to look at the environment rather than individual uh, I think in social psych terms, it's the fundamental misattribution error where we blame the individual rather than looking at the environment. Uh, and so the same thing applies with parents. You know, we play a role in that too. Not that I'm a parent. Don't know why I was saying we. Um, but but you're a-
1: as a leader of young people. Yeah. And you work with a lot of young athletes. So there is certainly a maternal instinct to coaching on any mm-hmm. level. Absolutely.
2: And I think, you know, if a, if a child that I'm coaching isn't succeeding, my first question is, oh, well, that kid just doesn't want it. That kid just doesn't care. It's like, well, no, it's not. This kid wouldn't be here if the kid doesn't care. It's something is going on in their life that's preventing them from succeeding. Or maybe it's the way that I'm coaching this individual and maybe that's not conducive to what they actually need. Maybe I need to nurture them more. Maybe they're here just for the social component, not actually for, you know, achieving um, success or playing at the highest level. Um, Because realistically, uh, at the community level, most kids will not play at the elite level you know most kids will actually drop out in a few years and i think when we focus solely on the sporting component and we don't treat these children as complete individuals and complete uh, humans we miss an element of teaching them life skills i think sport can be a massive medium for teaching them uh, you know things like accountability um, things like hard work work ethic and whatever else and seeing rewards for their efforts Uh, i think you know, sport is an excellent avenue for those sort of uh, coaching point or life points.
1: Fascinating. I mean, there's so many things to pull out of that from my point of view there, hooky. Um, what does it look like when we get it right? You talked about coaches, a massive influence on child or athlete motivation. Absolutely. What does it look like when they get it right? I'll give you a couple of examples. There's always kids in your team that are really motivated. They love the game and they will be first there, last to leave. But I actually like to measure the influence of the coach on creating a, let's say, a motivational climate by the behaviors of the athletes. And so one of the great markers is when a child who may not be your most motivated athlete, when they start seeking out opportunities, they are the person that wants to get to the front of the line. They want to start with the ball. They want to be the first person to initiate training. They're always good signs for me that coaches are really building, and of course, not just coaches, but as part of that environment, a space where young athletes can really build motivation. I think that's a really good one. So for our listeners there, if children don't want to go first because they fear making a mistake, or if they're dragging their feet going to the next drill, that's probably an example where the environment itself has an opportunity to improve, um, to try and, I guess, possibly positively enhance child motivation. Lots of really interesting things there, Nicole. Okay. Uh,
0: We're closing in on the Fast Four. We're going to take a short break. Our good friends at the Alcohol and Drug Foundation want to tell you a little bit about their Good Sports program. On the other side, the Fast Four. You're listening to Beyond the Club.
2: Hi, it's Ishra here from Good Sports. We are Australia's largest community sport health program helping over 10,000 clubs nationally to create safe, inclusive and family-friendly environments. Good clubs have great volunteers. Good sports helps you attract and keep volunteers. Clubs that progress through the program using our handy volunteer toolkits and resources can save hours of admin time. So your volunteers can focus on positioning the club for victory on and off the field. Good sports is free for all community sports clubs. To learn more, head to goodsports.com.au.
0: This is Beyond the Club with Ben Hook and Sam Elliott. Our special guest is Nicole Calder. Nicole, we have a fast four takeaways with each episode and we try and, I guess, break it down into something that's easy for anyone who listens in to take away and, I guess, apply practically to their own sporting career or whoever they're coaching or working with or working for. We're going to, as we've already, I guess, uh, elaborated on, take it a bit of a different way today. We want to just sort of pick out four areas of your life from a chronological perspective and get a bit of a feeling for you on what was really helpful with your own motivation and perhaps people externally or who helped or who didn't help and therefore what you would recommend people either do for others or avoid doing for others uh, by applying it in their own life so let's go right to the early days when you were sort of I guess even nutting out what sport you wanted to play you talked at the top that you were pretty keen on tennis and soccer became the thing for you why was that and I guess who helped you with that decision
2: So I chose soccer over tennis purely because I knew that I wasn't mentally tough enough to actually play tennis. I really struggled in singles. Every time I'd make a mistake, I would internalise as I wasn't good enough. Hated singles, loved doubles. I found doubles fun because, you know, if we lost the point, I could blame my my partner. Um, (laughs) Not really that. But, you know, doubles was fun. You actually had someone to interact with. Whereas singles, you're just by yourself with your thoughts and... I didn't have what it took to be an elite tennis player. Uh, And so I have so much appreciation for, you know, people out there that can play at the elite level for tennis. Uh, Soccer, however, um, team sport, you know, so you're there with your peers and you're working together towards a goal. And I think uh, probably playing soccer at a young age has sort of shaped my, one of my philosophies that um, it's the, the environment is so important. Uh, on what an individual can achieve. I think so much is focused, again, on individuals rather than looking at an environment. Um, When, you know, you could have the most mentally tough individual in the world and you put them in a toxic environment and they will still struggle in that toxic environment. So why not focus on making an environment better and more conducive for everyone to succeed rather than just for an individual?
0: So just on that, and I just want to bring you in very quickly, Sam, because I reckon this is something that you've preached quite considerably over the time that we've been doing this podcast. If you're a coach of junior athletes, focusing on your best athletes is actually detrimental to
1: establishing a really great environment for everyone. Absolutely. I would be trying to create a climate, a a condition at training where players feel like they can improve from where they were a week ago. That self-referenced improvement, that kind of environment is optimal. The research shows that is the gold standard when you're trying to build uh, and cultivate an environment for motivation. And it is fascinating, isn't it, that Nicole
0: has parroted almost exactly that, but from her perspective as a young athlete, she chose soccer over tennis. There was a couple of things for that about singles versus doubles, but on top of that, she loved the environment that had been created for her, in soccer, which
1: is just wonderful to hear the practical application of what you talk about in theory. It's also relating to that notion of connectedness. I think we said off the top self-determination theory, what are the three basic human needs that we want to kind of tick off, we want to fulfill? Well, that first one there for you is obvious. You have gone towards team sports, even in the individual sport you I enjoy, you sort out opportunities to play with others because we yearn for social connection. So that's a really good one. We've ticked that one off. I'm just in my mind hoping that we get through them and uh, <laughs> case in point, we've, we've proved self-determination theory, but um, yes, good. Beautiful
0: category of your career. Number one, perfectly explained, Nicole, let's move on to number two and in particular uh, surrounding the deep frustration, the devastation around not one, not two, but three ACLs. I'm sure there are some periods in your life where that was extremely demotivating. What did you do? What help did you get to get you out of the funk, if you like?
2: So I think for my first ACL, I was extremely motivated to come back because I saw it as a challenge. Um, And I wanted to come back stronger, fitter, smarter, and I also had the support of my peers and athletic staff in college because I was in my first year of college. So there was motivation from their perspective to get me to get me back because I was still eligible to play. Now, compare that to my second ACL when I was in my senior year where I was never going to play another college game. So they didn't actually have the motivation to help me get better because to them, they couldn't use me again. Um, and so I think Uh, there's difference in motivation with those two. And so for my second ACL, it took me two years to come back from. And how much of that was because, you know, it was my second ACL and how much of that was because I never actually had a goal to come back to. Mm. My first year, I wanted to come back and play, you know, another three seasons for my college team. Whereas when I did my second ACL, I didn't even know if I was going to play college again. I mean, not college uh, soccer again. Mm. Um, And so I think. The two stages of when I did them uh, significantly shaped my recovery and how long it took to recover from that. But also the social component that for my second ACL, I found that I couldn't even be on campus to do my rehab because every single time that I was on campus or I was, you know, at the stadium, it just served as a constant reminder of what I had and what I no longer did. And so I had to remove myself from that environment. And I found that, you know, with a lot in my career that if something's causing me pain, I have no shame in saying, you know what, that's too painful. I'm going to go somewhere else or I'm going to avoid that altogether. The amount of accounts that I've blocked on social media or whatever, because I'm like, I actually just don't want to see this. I actually just don't want that information occupying my mental space. Um, And so, you know, for anyone out there, if something's causing you pain, avoid it. You know, there's no shame in saying, you know what, that's too painful. Let's move over here. Um, you know, there's nothing noble in suffering. And I think sometimes we do uh, we do sort of normalise suffering uh, when it's like, you actually don't have to. Oh, it's
0: wonderful. I mean, I, I used to believe that suffering was all a part of getting better and it's a fascinating discussion. Uh, Sam, so there we're talking about uh, removing yourself from a situation of pain and that was a way forward for Nicole. Does that sort of fit in with the theory, the research that you've
1: undertaken? Yeah, in a different way it absolutely does because Nicole in those examples did someone forcibly remove you from these environments or did you choose did you elect to or self-exclude from these social media sites or these groups or these environments and I think the answer is that it was a largely determined by the individual. That is an example of control, that is an example of autonomy. So when that need is met, not necessarily does it motivate you to be, you know, the, the world's next Um, you know, uh, the most um, uh, accomplished soccer player going around. But it certainly maintains your motivation with things that matter and the direction with which you're moving through. So, yes, it absolutely ticks that box of autonomy. Let's move on to a later stage of your
0: career, maybe around the disappointment of being cut from Adelaide United. That obviously can be depressing, disappointing, all of those emotions. What really worked for you to come out the other side of that and did you, if it was there any sort of external support that you got that you would look back now and go, that really helped and if someone else is in the same situation, that's what I would offer.
2: I think when we focus on external goals, it leaves us vulnerable to feeling disappointment and heartbreak when we don't achieve those goals. And so what I found is that I was going through grief. I had to grieve the fact that I had lost this goal. I had lost this dream and I needed time to mourn that. And so straight after I got cut, um, my, I had a soccer coach call me and she said, oh, I just wanted to check in and make sure that you weren't thinking anything stupid like quitting soccer altogether. And I laughed. Through tears, and I said, "That's exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, what's the point of playing anymore? You know, I've I've done everything that I'm supposed to do by the book and whatever else, and I still haven't achieved my goal. Um, you know, that thought of uh, work hard and you can achieve anything. I, I internalized that, and I mm. thought, well, I've worked hard and I still can't achieve it, so I guess I'm just not good enough. Uh, and she sort of was that sounding board and said, Nicole, you absolutely are good enough. Uh, and she said. Please don't be stupid. Please don't give up soccer. Uh, You know, I would love to have you at uh, our club. And maybe she was, um, you know, targeting me because I was vulnerable, but it worked. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm I ended up joining her club the following year. But she saw me as a person first and she saw me as someone that was in pain. And she said, take some time off, you know, take the next two months off or whatever else and come back in the new year and come and play for us. Uh, And so that really helped me because she saw me as you need time to get over this. You know, you need time to grieve this. And I think sometimes we don't allow individuals to grieve disappointment and it's kind of like, you know, get back on the saddle again, because, uh, you know, if you're not training, then someone else is training and getting better than you. But, uh, you know, there's this really good analogy where there's two people and they're cutting down a tree and one of them, he cuts the tree um, for eight hours straight and the other one he takes breaks every two hours and he sharpens his axe. Now who do you think cuts down the tree first? You think it's the person that you know doesn't take breaks and it's like no it's the one that takes breaks sharpens his axe and then comes back refreshed uh, and has that motivation to keep going whereas I think sometimes we get so caught up in go 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 you know you have to um, you can't take any breaks from sport but it's like it's actually really healthy to take time off not just time off from uh, your sport, but all sport altogether. Come back refreshed, come back wanting to play rather than burnt out, which I think we see a lot of in kids these days that they're burnt out.
1: It's It reminds me of a really, really good example, uh, Nicole and, and Ben, um, and it's not in sport, but I'm going to paraphrase it for sport. And if a coach says, oh, Nicole, get back on the horse or come back to training, you know, and, and they basically dismiss the emotional work that you might need to go through from injury or form, um, inconsistency, that kind of thing. Um, and the the athlete or the person in this scenario says back to the coach, um, I'm taking a period of leave or I need to take some time, whatever it might be. And the coach might say, you clearly don't care. You clearly don't care about your teammates. You clearly don't care about what we're trying to do. We've built a great culture, Whatever, what's going on. And the athlete says, it's quite to the contrary. I care that much... I care that much about what we're trying to do. I love this sport that much that I would not dare give you anything less than 100%. And so by taking the time and by giving yourself the space to grieve, to nurture, to rebuild, whatever it might be that you need to come back uh, is a nice way of maybe reframing the way in which we see athletes that need to take time to process. And often if you don't, if you force that, type of motivation we haven't spoken about is a motivation. You start to build the type of motivation that actually sees social loafing, withdrawal, less than 100% effort deliberately. And so that's something that we need to be aware of as well. But uh, yeah, really interesting. And the, the thing I like about that is that coach that, um, that called you and reminded you that you are good enough. It's a good example of competence because sometimes we can realize that as an individual, but sometimes we need reinforcers in our environment. And sometimes it is just someone next to you saying, you are good enough and you may have forgot it temporarily, but it's a reminder, you're there. Stick with it. You're doing all right. Nicole,
0: what's driving you now? So still playing, still very successful on the pitch, but you're now heavily involved in motivational speaking and working with people who are maybe having challenges with their own mental health. What's the motivation for you now?
2: I think I am in a very exciting period of my career, both as a player and as a coach. I think as a player, I am looking more to how can I learn, you know, how can I learn from coaches of what I like as a player, what I don't like. So then I can implement that as a coach. Um, And so this year, you know, we've got a new coach and I'm very excited about him because uh, you know, he comes highly regarded and his coaching style is different to other coaching styles. And it's more about, okay, well, what can I pick from what he does to then implement with my girls that I'm coaching with uh, the U17s Um, and becoming more of a student of the game so actually watching soccer which I never enjoyed doing as a kid I hated watching watching soccer because I just never saw the point because there was no intent behind what I was watching it was oh you're just watching soccer whereas now I I watch soccer and I watch players in my position and I'm like oh what is that centre-back doing oh you know what's their body position how could they have prevented that goal and whatever else and so you become a student of the game because I want to now but I didn't want to when I was a kid and so I think that's an important point that motivation will change throughout your life depending on what's stage that you're in. Um, And so I guess for me now, what motivates me is sort of helping the next generation and hoping to be a coach that I didn't have growing up and creating those safe environments for people to succeed. And I think Uh, instead of just focusing on the individual and the most talented individuals, it's, okay, well, how can we improve everyone? Uh, And realising that I'm not an expert, you know, I will need help. And so I have a few assistants this year who are also teammates of mine, and I've said, look, my focus is on the macro, their focus is on the micro. So they will give the individual feedback, whereas I will focus on sort of the systems of play and whatever else. Um, And I guess another point um, that I wanted to make was, with, uh, with players that I'm playing with and also coaching, something that's really important for me is learning their motivation. So that starting with why of, okay, well, why did you choose to play for this club? Why have you chosen to stay at this club? Uh, because understanding that, is it for a social reason? Are they playing just to have fun? Are they playing because they want to reach the next level? Because once I understand that, I can then tailor my coaching approach to what it is that they want. I can tailor my teammate approach to, okay, well, I either push this person or I don't. You know, Maybe I accept the fact that they don't actually care that, or they don't seem to care uh, and they're not working hard rather than, okay, well, they want to play it in the next level. Let's hold them accountable to that.
0: Is it also important for them, To work that out, Uh, you're asking the question on the basis that you want to know and therefore you can tailor your own program. But uh, I imagine asking that question causes someone to think, actually, why do I come here and what do I want to get out of this?
2: Yeah, definitely. Even I ask myself the same question of, okay, well, why are you choosing to stay at this club when you could go to another club and possibly get more money? You know, I, I live in Marion and I drive out to Salisbury. So the case of, well, why are you choosing to stay at this club? You know, you could go and play for a club that's closer and potentially earn more money doing that. And the answer is because that's not the most important thing to me. We talk about connections, um, connections that I've built at this club, but also the feeling of being valued. You know, at this club, I'm uh, very fortunate to co-captain the WNPO team. I'm very fortunate to have a say in sort of the philosophy of the juniors um, and you know, that is so important in the psychological needs that we have. And I don't know whether I would get that going to another club. So the grass isn't always greener. And it's a case of, okay, well, what is your motivation? What is the most important thing to you? Um, If it's money, that's fine. You know, go to where you're getting paid the most. But, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, when you're sitting on your deathbed, are you looking back being like, oh, you know, I made this much money um, when I could have been making this much more? Or is it, yeah, wow, I had some very beautiful relationships or connections at this environment that I was involved in.
0: Good recommendation for other aspiring young coaches, Sam.
1: I love the, uh, the Simon Sonex codification of uh, behaviour um, and you've, you've beautifully talked about why there. The example I always use there, Hookie, is the City to Bay Fun Run. Yep, And there are people just sprinting past me. They are clearly behaving in a very different way. They clearly have a higher level of motivation that they can put forth in that event. But at the starting line, when no one's winning, no one's losing, the the, the race hasn't started yet. The run hasn't started yet. If you were to interview every single athlete, a bit like what Nicole's talking about here, learning about their why, there'll be some that are doing it because they have run this for 10 years. And there'll be some that have run the city to bay maybe for the first time. Okay, they're doing just for a challenge. Uh, there are some that promise their friend and finally they're doing it. So there's that connection that's, that's driving this behavior. There are those that are fundraising money. There are so many reasons why people do that. And in sport, the same example applies. There are so many reasons why athletes play the game. And what Nicole's doing beautifully is learning about them, learning about your constituents, your stakeholders. Uh, and what that's going to allow you to do is to help build an environment that meets their motivational needs. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things that we've heard today. And for our listeners, hopefully they're thinking more about what they can do to learn more about their players, their members, and to tailor an environment that allows motivation to thrive. One quick story uh, from the City Bay. I ran the most incredible City
0: Bay time because I was just trotting along and at the nine kilometre mark a bloke ran past me dressed in a zebra costume and <laughs> I made the decision right there and then that I wasn't going to get beaten by a bloke dressed as a zebra and I can still remember running down Jetty Road and I thought I've got this guy covered and then I'd hear someone in the crowd yell like look at that guy dressed as a zebra and there I was I'd absolutely put my head down and go that little bit harder a little bit of stuff on motivation. Nicole, Wonderful discussion. Really interesting. I know so many people are going to take so much out of it. There's so much more that you've got to share as well. Tell us a little bit about the programs that um, that you run.
2: Uh, yeah. So when I graduated in America with a degree in psychology, I uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do with soccer. I... I became a crisis uh, text line counsellor for a while. Um, so I volunteered for that, which is like a suicide hotline, but it's a text line. And going through that program, you had to do six weeks worth of training to become a qualified counsellor. Uh, and whilst I was doing that, I had this you know, thought of, well... Imagine if every single student in Australia could take a course like this and learn how to support others when they're struggling. Uh, because I think that there's a massive deficiency in society with mental health regards to how to support others when they're struggling. There's a lot of focus on the individual uh, and what the individual needs to do. But again, going back to the environment, you're not just going to go up to a stranger and start telling them your life story. But if that stranger creates an environment in which you first feel safe, in which they ask questions and they take an active interest in your life, Well, you're more likely to open up to them, Um, you know, and same thing with being vulnerable. You're not just going to be vulnerable with someone that you don't feel safe with. So you have to create those environments where you feel safe. And that sort of uh, dictated a lot of what I do when I coach or when I play. It's creating that safety first. Uh, and so I've designed a couple of programs to, to our modules where I teach people skills of how to support others, particularly for, you know, parents of how to support their kids when they're struggling, because quite often, you know, it's a natural parent instinct, I believe, to want to fix their kid and to fix their problems. But sometimes kids don't need their uh, problems fixed. You know, we talk about autonomy, that they need actually the space to solve their own problems uh, so that they can then feel empowered that in the future they can do that again. Uh, so that's a little bit about what I'm doing uh, as well as a bit of public speaking on that as well. Where do we find you? Uh, my website is www.nicolecolder.com.
0: I, s- I get the feeling from that that I've been pronouncing your surname incorrectly for this entire episode. <laughs>
2: no, you've done pretty well.
0: Uh, not too bad. Calder not not colder. Calder. Calder. Calder?
2: <laughs> Calder. Fair like enough. I called her on the phone.
1: Sam to wrap anything else no love that Nicole thank you so much for your time I think our listeners are going to have a lot to take out of that episode I know I certainly have hooky it's been really great so thank you so much for coming on today
2: thank you very much for having me
1: Nicole
0: Calder our guest we'll uh, take a short break and we'll wrap everything up on the other side of this this is beyond the club so that is Season 2, Episode 5 of Beyond the Club in the rearview mirror. You can access the resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes or by heading to our webpage, flinders.edu.au forward slash shape. Uh, I'd also like to recommend that you just Google Nicole Calder if you ever want to find more information on her story or how you can get in contact with her and maybe utilize some of her services at your club. I'm Sam Elliott at Twitter. I'm Ben Hook one on Twitter. And of course the podcast beyond the club is on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. You can find us anywhere you like. Big thank you to the crew right here in the Flinders good vibe factory in particular, Gemma Caven, our producer, our producer, And just to recognise Ben Watson, who is our music man, and Alicia Menzel, who has done that stunning artwork that you see every time you tap on our logo. Thanks for your company. See you next time on Beyond the Club.